0: Part 2 of A Child of the Jago by Arthur Morrison. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 7 to 12. Section 7. There was no chance all along Meakin Street. The chandlers and keepers of cookshops knew their neighbourhood too well to leave articles unguarded. Soon Dickie reached Shoreditch High Street. There things were a little more favourable. There were shops, as he well remembered, where goods were sometimes exhibited at the doors and outside the windows, but today there seemed to be no chance of the sort. As for the people, he was too short to try pockets, and indeed the high street rarely gave passage to a more unpromising lot. Moreover, from robbery from the person he knew he must abstain, except for such uncommon opportunities as that of the bishop's watch for some years yet. He hung about the doors and windows of shop after shop, hoping for a temporary absence of the shopkeeper, which might leave something snatchable. But he hoped in vain. From most shops he was driven away, for the shoreditch trader is not slow to judge the purpose of a loitering boy. So he passed nearly two hours, when at last he saw his chance. It came in an advantageous part of High Street, not far from the posties, though on the opposite side of the way. A nurse girl had left a perambulator at a shop door, while she bought inside, and on the perambulator lay loose a little skin rug, from under which a little fat leg stuck and waved aloft. Dicky set his back to the shop, and sidled to within reach of the perambulator, but it chanced that at this moment the nurse girl stepped to the door, and she made a snatch at his arm as he lifted the rug. This he dropped at once, and was swinging leisurely away, for he despised the chase of any nurse girl, when a man took him suddenly by the shoulder, quick as a weasel, Dicky ducked under the man's arm, pulled his shoulder clear, dropped forward, and rested an instant on the tips of his fingers to avoid the catch of the other hand, and shot out into the road. The man tried to follow, but Dicky ran under the belly of a standing horse, under the head of another that trotted, across the fore-platform of a tram-car, behind the driver's back, and so over to the posties. He slouched into the jago, disappointed. As he crossed Edge Lane, he was surprised to perceive a stranger, a toff, indeed, who walked slowly along, looking up right and left at the grimy habitations about him. He wore a tall hat, and his clothes were black, and of a pattern that Dickie remembered to have seen at the Elevation Mission. They were, in fact, the clothes of a clergyman. For himself, he was tall and soundly built, with a certain square muscularity of face, and of age, about thirty-five. He had ventured into the Jago because the police were in possession, Dicky thought, and wondered in what plight he would leave, had he come at another time. But losing view of the stranger, and making his way along Old Jago Street, Dicky perceived that indeed the police were gone, and that the Jago was free. He climbed the broken stairs and pushed into the first floor back, hopeful, though more doubtful, of dinner. There was none, his mother, tied about the neck with rags, lay across the bed nursing the damage of yesterday and commiserating herself a yard from her lay Louis, sick and ailing in a new way but disregarded dicky moved to lift her but at that she cried the more and he was fain to let her lie she rolled her head from side to side and raised her thin little hand vaguely toward it with feverishly working fingers dicky felt her head and she screamed again there was a lump at the side a hard, sharp lump, got from the stones of the roadway yesterday, and there was a curious quality, a rather fearful quality, in the little wails, uneasily suggestive of the screams of Sally Green's victims. Father was out, prowling. There was nothing eatable in the cupboard, and there seemed to be nothing at home worth staying for. He took another look at Louis, but refrained from touching her, and went out. The opposite door on the landing was wide open. And he could hear nobody in the room he had never seen this door open before and now he ventured on a peep for the tenants of the front room were strangers late arrivals and interlopers Their name was roper roper was a pale cabinetmaker fallen on evil times and out of work he had a pale wife disliked because of her neatly kept clothes her exceeding use of soap and water her aloofness from gossip she had a deadly pale baby also, there was a pale hunchbacked boy of near Dickie's age. Collectively, the Ropers were disliked as strangers, because they furnished their own room and in an obnoxiously complete style, because Roper did not drink, nor brawl, nor beat his wife, nor do anything all day but look for work, because all these things were a matter of scandalous arrogance, impudently subversive of Jago custom and precedent. Mrs Perrott was bad enough but such people as these. Dicky had never before seen quite such a room as this. Everything was so clean. The floor, the windows, the bedclothes. Also there was a strip of old carpet on the floor. There were two perfectly sound chairs, and two pink glass vases on the mantelpiece. And a clock. Nobody was in the room, and Dicky took a step farther. The clock attracted him again. It was a small cheap nickel-plated cylindrical thing of American make, and it reminded him at once of the bishop's watch. It was not gold, certainly, but it was a good deal bigger, and it could go. It was going. Dicky stepped back and glanced at the landing. Then he darted into the room, whipped the clock under the breast of the big jacket, and went for the stairs. Halfway down, he met the pale hunchback ascending. Left at home alone, he had been standing in the front doorway. He saw Dicky's haste, saw also the suspicious bulge under his jacket, and straightway seized Dicky's arms. Where you been? He asked sharply. Been in our room? What you got there? Nothing o yours, ump. Get out of that. Dicky pushed him aside. If you don't let go, I'll corpse ye. But one arm and hand was occupied with the bulge, and the other was for the moment unequal to the work of driving off the assailant. The two children wrangled and struggled downstairs, through the doorway and into the street. The hunchback weak but infuriate, buffeting, biting, and whimpering. Dicky infuriate too, but alert for a chance to break away and run. So they scrambled together across the street, Dicky dragging away from the house at every step. And just at the corner of Luck Row, getting his forearm across the other's face, he back heeled him, and the little hunchback fell heavily and lay breathless and sobbing. While Dicky scampered through Luck Row and round the corner into Meakin Street, Mister Weech was busier now, for there were customers. But Dicky, in his bulge, he saw ere they were well over the threshold. Ah oh, yes, Dicky, he said, coming to meet him. I was expecting you. Come in. In the sweet by and by, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. Come in here, and still humming his hymn, he led Dicky into the shop parlour. Here Dickie produced the clock, which Mr Weech surveyed with no great approval. You'll have to do better than this, you know. But anyway, here it is, such as it is. It about clears half what you owe, I reckon. Want some dinner? This was a fact, and Dicky admitted it. All right. In the sweet by and by. Come and sit down. I'll bring you something hot. This proved to be a very salt bloater, a cup of the usual muddy coffee, tasting of burnt toast, and a bit of bread, afterwards supplemented by a slice of cake. This, to Dickie, was a banquet. Moreover, there was the adult dignity of taking your dinner in a coffee shop, which Dickie supported indomitably now that he began to feel at ease in Mr Weech's, leaning back in his seat, swinging his feet, and looking about at the walls with the grossest almanacs hanging there too, and the Sunday school anniversary bills of past date gathered from afar to signalise the elevated morals of the establishment. Done? queried Mr Weech in his ear. All right, don't hang about here then. Bloat is a penny, bread a apeny, coffee a penny, cake a penny. You like trippin's apty now. Section 8 When Nicky Perrett and the small hunchback were hauling and struggling across the street, old Fisher came down from the top floor back, wherein he dwelt with his son Bob, Bob's wife and two sisters and five children, an apartment in no way so clean as the united efforts of ten people might be expected to have made it. Old Fisher, on whose grimy face the wrinkles were deposits of mud, stopped at the open door on the first floor, and, as Dickie had done, he took a peep. Perplexed at the monstrous absence of dirt, and encouraged by the stillness, Old Fisher also ventured within. Nobody was in charge, and old fisher, mentally pricing the pink glass vases at threepence, made for a small chest in the corner of the room and lifted the lid. Within lay many of Roper's tools, from among which he had that morning taken such as he might want on an emergency call to work, to carry as he tramped Curtain Road. Clearly these were the most valuable things in the place, and slipping a few small articles into his pockets... Old Fisher took a good double handful of the larger, and tramped upstairs with them. Presently he returned with Bob's missus, and together they started with more. As they emerged, however, there on the landing, stood the little hunchback, sobbing and smearing his face with his sleeve. At sight of this new pillage, he burst into sharp wails, standing impotent on the landing, his streaming eyes following the man and woman ascending before him. Old Fisher, behind... Stumped the stairs with a clumsy affectation of absent-mindedness. The woman in front looked down, merely indifferent. Scarce were they vanished above, however, when the little hunchback heard his father and mother on the lower stairs. Section 9. Dicky came moodily back from his dinner at Mr. Weech's, plunged in mystified computation. Starting with a debt of twopence, he had paid Mr. Weech an excellent clock. A luxurious article, in Dickie's eyes, had eaten a bloater and had emerged from the transaction owing threepence ha'penny. Of what such a clock cost, he had no notion, though he felt it must be some inconceivable sum. As Mr. Weech put it, the adjustment of accounts would seem to be quite correct. But the broad fact that all had ended in increasing his debt by three halfpence remained and perplexed him. He remembered having seen such clocks in a shop in Norton Folgate. To ask the price, in person, were but to be chased out of the shop, but they were probably ticketed, and perhaps he might ask some bystander to read the ticket. This brought the reflection that, after all, reading was a useful accomplishment on occasion, though a matter of too much time and trouble to be worth while. Dickie had never been to school for the Elementary Education Act ran in the Jago no more than any other act of Parliament. There was a board school, truly, a way out of the Jago bounds, by the corner of Honey Lane, where children might go free, and where some few Jago children did go, now and again, when boots were to be given away, or when tickets were to be had, for tea, for soup, or the like. But most parents were of Josh Perrott's opinion. The school-going was a practice best never begun, for then the child was never heard of, and there was no chance of inquiries or such trouble. Not that any such inquiries were common in the Jago, or led to anything. Meanwhile Dicky, minded to know if his adventure had made any stir in the house, carried his way deviously toward home. Working through the parts beyond Jago Row, he fetched round into Honey Lane, so coming at New Jago Street from the farther side. Choosing one of the houses whose backs gave on Jago Court, he slipped through the passage and so, by the back yard, crawled through the broken fence into the court. Left and right were the fronts of houses, four aside. Before him, to the right of the narrow archway leading to Old Jago Street, was a window of his own home. He gained the backyard quietly, and at the kitchen door met Tommy Rann. "'Come on,' called Tommy, "'here's a barney. They're a-pitching into them new ones, Ropes says fishes is sneak their things. They're a gittin' of it.' From the stairs, indeed, came shouts and curses, bumps and sobs and cries. The first landing, and half the stairs were full of people, men and women, Ranns and Learys together. When Rand's joined Leary's, it was an ill time for them they marched against, for never were they so ready and so anxious to combine as after a fight between themselves, were but some common object of attack available. Here it was. Here were these pestilent outsiders, the ropers, assailing the reputation of the neighbourhood by complaining of being robbed, as though their mere presence in the Jago, with their furniture and their superiority, were not obnoxious enough. They must turn about and call their neighbours thieves. They had been tolerated too long already. They should now be given something for themselves, and have some of their exasperating respectability knocked off. And if, in the confusion, their portable articles of furniture and bedclothing found their way into more deserving hands, why serve them right? The requisite volleys of preliminary abuse having been discharged, more active operations began under cover of fresh volleys, Dickie, with Tommy, ran behind him, struggled up the stairs among legs and skirts, and saw that the ropers, the man flushed, but the woman, paler than ever, were striving to shut their door. Within, the hunchback and the baby cried, and without, those on the landing, skidding the door with their feet, pushed inward, and now began to strike and maul. Somebody seized the man's wrist, and Nora Walsh got the woman by the hair and dragged her hair down. In a peep through the scuffle dicky saw her face ashen and sweat-beaded in the jam of the door and saw Nora Walsh's red fist beat into it twice then somebody came striding up the stairs and dicky was pushed farther back over the shoulders of those about him dicky saw a tall hat and then the head beneath it it was the stranger he had seen in edge lane the parson active and resolute Nora Walsh he took by the shoulder and flung back among the others, and as he turned on him, the man who held Roper's wrist released it and backed off. "'What is this?' demanded the newcomer, stern and hard of face. "'What is all this?' He bent his frown on one and another about him, and as he did it, some shrank uneasily, and on the faces of others fell the blank lack of expression that was wont to meet police inquiries in the Jago. Dicky looked to see this man beaten down, kicked and stripped. But a well-dressed stranger was so new a thing in the jago, this one had dropped among them so suddenly, and he had withal so bold a confidence, that the jago stood irresolute. A toff was not a person to be attacked without due consideration. After such a person there were apt to be inquiries, with money to back them, and vengeance sharp and certain. The thing, indeed, was commonly thought too risky. And this man, so unflinchingly confident, must needs have reason for it. He might have the police at instant call. They might be back in the jago at the moment. And he flung them back, commanded them, cowed them with his hard, intelligent eyes, like a tamer among beasts. Understand this. Now, he went on, with a sharp tap of his stick on the floor, this is the sort of thing I will not tolerate in my parish. In this parish nor in any other place where i may meet it go away and try to be ashamed of yourselves go go all of you i say to your own homes i shall come there and talk to you again soon go along sam cash you've a broken head already i see take it away i shall come and see you too those on the stairs had melted away like punished school children most of the others after a moment of averted face and muttered justification one to another, were dragging their feet, each with a hang-dog pretense of sauntering airily off from some sight no longer interesting. Sam Cash, who had already seen the stranger in the street, and was thus perhaps a trifle less startled than the others at his advent, stood, however, with some assumption of virtuous impudence, till amazed by sudden address in his own name, whereat, Clean discomfited, he ignominiously turned tail and sneaked downstairs in meaner haste than the rest. How should this strange parson know him, and know his name? Plainly, he must be connected with the police. He had brought out the name as Pat as you please. So argued Sam Cash with his fellows in the outer street, never recalling that Jerry Gullen had called aloud to him by name when first he observed the parson in the street. Had called to him indeed to haste to the bashing of the ropers and thus had first given the stranger notice of the proceeding. But it was the way of the jago that its mean cunning saw a mystery and a terror where simple intelligence saw there was none. As the crowd began to break up, Dicky pushed his own door a little open behind him and there stood on his own ground as the others cleared off. And the hunchback ventured a peep from behind his swooning mother. See that's him, he shouted, pointing at Dicky. He begun it. He took the clock. Dicky instantly dropped behind his door and shut it fast. The invaders had all gone. The fishers had made upstairs in the beginning, before the parson turned and entered the roper's room. In five minutes he emerged and strode upstairs. Whence he returned, after a still shorter interval, herding before him Old Fisher and Bob Fisher's missus sulky and reluctant carrying tools and thus it was that the reverend henry sturt first addressed his parishioners the parish beside the jago comprised Meakin street and some small way beyond and it was to this less savage district that his predecessor had confined his attention preaching every sunday in a stable in an alley behind a disused shop and distributing loaves and sixpences to the old women who attended regularly on that account. For to go into the jago were for him mere wasted effort. And so, indeed, the matter had been since the parish came into being. Section 10 When Dicky retreated from the landing, and shut the door behind him, he slipped the bolt, a strong one, put there by Josh Perrott himself, possibly as an accessory to escape by the window in some possible desperate pass. For a little he listened, but no sound hinted of attack from without, and he turned to his mother. Josh Perrott had been out since early morning, and Dicky too, had done no more than look in for a moment in search of dinner. Hannah Perrott, grown tired of self-commiseration, felt herself neglected and aggrieved, slighted in her state of invalid privilege so she transferred some of her pity from her sore neck to her desolate condition as misprized wife and mother, and the better to feel it, proceeded to martyrise herself, with melancholy pleasure, by a nerveless show of setting to rights in the room, a domestic novelty, perfunctory as it was. Louis, still restless and weeping, she left on the bed, for, being neglected herself, it was not her mood to tend the baby. She would aggravate the relish of her sorrows in her own way. Besides, Louis had been given something to eat a long time ago and had not eaten it yet. With her there was nothing else to do. So that now, as she dragged a rag along the grease-strewn mantelpiece, Mrs Perrott greeted Dicky. There you are, Dickie. Coming in here just when I'm a-putting things to rights. And she sighed with the weight of another grievance. Louis lay on her back, Faintly and vainly struggling to turn her fearful little face from the light, clutched in her little fist was the unclean stump of bread she had held for hours. Dicky plucked a soft piece and essayed to feed her with it, but the dry little mouth rejected the morsel, and the head turned feverishly from side to side to the sound of that novel cry. She was hot wherever Dicky touched her, and presently he said, "Mother, I believe Louis queer." I think she wants some medicine. His mother shook her head peevishly. Oh, you and Louis a nuisance, she said. A lot you care about me being queer, you and your father too, leaving me all alone like this, and me feeling ready to drop and got the room to do and all. I wish you'd go away and stop injuring of me like this. Dickie took but another look at Louis, and then slouched out. The landing was clear, and the roper's door was shut. He wondered what had become of the stranger with the tall hat, whether he was in the roper's room or not. The thought hurried him, for he feared to have that stranger asking him questions about the clock. He got out into the street, thoughtful. He had some compunctions in the matter of that clock, now. Not that he could, in any reasonable way, blame himself. There the clock had stood at his mercy, and by all Jago custom and ethic it was his if only he could get clear away with it. This he had done, and he had no more concern in the business, strictly speaking. Nevertheless, since he had seen the woman's face in the jam of the door, he felt a sort of pity for her, that she should have lost her clock. No doubt she had enjoyed its possession, as indeed he would have enjoyed it himself, had he not had to take it instantly to Mr. Weech and his fancy wandered off in meditation of what he would do with a clock of his own. To begin with, of course, he would open it and discover the secret of its works and its ticking, perhaps thereby discovering how to make a clock himself. Also, he would frequently wind it up, and he would show the inside to Louis, in confidence. It would stand on the mantelpiece and raise the social position of the family. People would come respectfully to ask the time, and he would tell them with an air. Yes, certainly a clock must stand eminent among the things he would buy when he had plenty of money. He must look out for more cliques, the one way to riches. As to the ropers again, bad it must be, indeed, to be deprived suddenly of a clock after long experience of the joys it brought. And Nora Walsh had punched the woman in the face and clawed her hair and the woman could not fight. Dicky was sorry for her, and straightway resolved to give her another clock, or, if not a clock, something that would please her as much. He had acquired a clock in the morning, why not another in the afternoon? Failing a clock, he would try for something else, and the Ropers should have it. The resolve gave Dicky a virtuous exaltation of spirit, the reward of the philanthropist. Again he began the prowl after likely plunder that was to be his daily industry. Meekin Street he did not try. The Chandlers and the Cookshops held nothing that might be counted a consolatory equivalent for a clock. Through the posties he reached Shoreditch High Street at once, and started. This time his movements aroused less suspicion. In the morning he had no particular prize in view, and loitered at every shop, waiting his chance at anything portable. Now, with a more definite object, he made his promenade easily, but without stopping or lounging by shop-fronts. The thing, whatsoever it might be, must be small, handsome, and of an interesting character, at least as interesting as the clock was. It must be small, not merely for facility of concealment and removal, though these were main considerations, but because stealthy presentation were then the easier. It would have pleased Dicky to hand over his gift openly and to bask in the thanks and the consideration it would procure. But he had been accused of stealing the clock, and an open gift would savour of admission and peace offering, whereas in that matter stark denial was his plain course. A roll of print stuff would not do, apples would not do, and fish was wide of his purpose. Up one side and down the other side of High Street he walked. HIS EYES INSTANT FOR SUGGESTION AND OPPORTUNITY, BUT ALL IN VAIN. NOBODY EXPOSED CLOCKS OUT OF DOORS, AND OF THOSE WITHIN, NOT ONE BUT AN ATTEMPT ON IT was SIMPLE MADNESS, AND OF THE THINGS LESS DESPERATE OF ACCESS, NOTHING WAS PROPER TO THE OCCASION, ALL WERE TOO LARGE, TOO CHEAP, OR TOO UNINTERESTING. ODDLY, DICKY FEARED FAILURE MORE THAN HAD HE BEEN HUNTING FOR HIMSELF. HE TRIED FARTHER SOUTH in Norton Folgate. There was a shop of cheap second-hand miscellanies, saddles, razors, straps, dumbbells, pistols, boxing gloves, trunks, bags and billiard balls. Many of the things hung about the doorposts in bunches, and within all was black, as in a cave. At one doorpost was a pistol. Nothing could be more interesting than a pistol. Indeed, it was altogether a better possession than a clock and it was a small, handy sort of thing. Probably the Ropers would be delighted with the pistol. He stood and regarded it with much interest. There were difficulties. In the first place, it was beyond his reach. In the second, it hung by the trigger guard on a stout cord. Just then, glancing within the shop, he perceived a pair of fiery eyes regarding him, panther-like, from the inner gloom. And he hastily resumed his walk, as the Jew shopkeeper reached the door and watched him safely away. Now he came to Bishopsgate Street, and here at last he chose the gift. It was at a toy shop, a fine flaming toy shop with carts, dolls and hoops dangling above, and wooden horses standing below, guarding two baskets by the door. One contained a mixed assortment of tops, whips, boats and woolly dogs, the other was lavishly filled with shining round metal boxes, nobly decorated with coloured pictures, each box with a little cranked handle. As he looked, a tune, delightfully tinkled on some instrument, was heard from within the shop. Dicky peeped. There was a lady, with a little girl at her side, who was looking eagerly at just such a shining round box in the saleswoman's hands. And it was from that box, as the saleswoman turned the handle, that the tune came. Dicky was enchanted. This, this was the thing beyond debate—a pretty little box that would play music whenever you turned a handle. This was a thing worth fifty clocks. Indeed, it was almost as good as a regular barrel organ. The first thing he would buy if he were rich. There was a shop boy in charge of the goods outside the window, and his eyes were on Dicky. So Dicky whistled absently and strolled carelessly along. He swung behind a large wagon, crossed the road, and sought a convenient doorstep, for his mind was made up, and his business was now to sit down before the toy shop and wait his opportunity. A shop had been boarded up after a fire, and from its doorstep one could command a perfect view of the toy shop across the broad thoroughfare with its crowded traffic, could sit, moreover, safe from interference. Here he took his seat, secure from the notice of the guardian shop boy, whose attention was given to passengers on his own side. The little girl, gripping the new toy in her hand, came out at her mother's side and trotted off. For a moment, Dicky reflected that the box could be easily snatched, but after all, the little girl had but one, whereas the shopwoman had many, and at best could play on no more than one at a time. He resumed his watch of the shop boy, confident that sooner or later a chance would come. A woman stopped to ask the price of something, and Dickie had half-crossed the road ere the boy had begun to answer. But the answer was short, and the boy's attention was released too soon. At last the shopwoman called the boy within, and Dicky darted across. Not directly, but so as to arrive invisibly at the side next the basket of music boxes a quick glance behind him a snatch at the box with the reddest picture and a dash into the traffic did it the dash would not have been called for but for the sudden reappearance of the shop-boy ere the box had vanished amid the intricacies of dicky's jacket dicky was fast but the boy was little slower and was moreover bigger and stronger on his legs and dicky reached the other pavement and turned the next corner into widegate street the pursuer scarce ten yards behind it was now that he first experienced HOT BEEF, which is the Jago idiom denoting the plight of one harried by the cry, STOP THIEF! Down Widegate Street, across Sandy's Row and into Raven Row, he ran his best, clutching the hem of his jacket and the music box that lay within. Crossing Sandy's Row, a loafing lad shouldered against the shop-boy, and Dicky was grateful, for he made it a gain of several yards. But others had joined in the hunt and Dicky, for the first time, began to fear. This was a bad day. Twice already he had been chased, and now it was bad. He thought little more, for a stunning fear fell upon him, the fear of the hunted that calculates nothing and is measured by no apprehension of consequences. He remembered that he must avoid Spitalfields Market, full of men who would stop him, and he knew that in many places where a man would be befriended, Many would make a virtue of stopping a boy. To the right along Bell Lane he made an agonised burst of speed, and for a while he saw not, nor remembered anything. Heard no more than dreadful shouts drawing nearer his shoulders. Felt only the fear. But he could not last. Quick enough when fresh, he was tiny and ill-fed. And now he felt his legs trembling and his wind going. Something seemed to beat on the back of his head, Till he wondered madly if it were the shop-boy with a stick. He turned corners and chose his way by mere instinct, ashen-faced, staring, open-mouthed. How soon would he give in and drop? A street more. Half a street. Ten yards. Rolling and tripping. He turned one last corner and almost fell against a vast, fat, unkempt woman whose clothes slid from her shoulders. "'Here you are, boy!' said the woman, and flung him by the shoulder through the doorway before which she stood. He was saved at his extremity, for he could never have reached the street's end. The woman who had done it, probably she had boys of her own on the crook, filled the entrance with her frowsy bulk, and the chase straggled past. Dicky caught the stairpost for a moment's support, and then staggered out at the back of the house. He gasped, he panted, Things danced blue before him, but still he clutched his jacket hem and the music box lying within. The back door gave on a cobbled paved court, with other doors, two costas barrows and a few dusty fowls. Dicky sat on a step where a door was shut and rested his head against the frame. The beating in his head grew slower and lighter, and presently he could breathe with no fear of choking. He rose and moved off still panting and feeble in the legs. The court ended in an arched passage, through which he gained the street beyond. Here he had but to turn to the left, and he was in Brick Lane, and thence all was clear to the old Jago. Regaining his breath and his confidence as he went, he bethought him of the Jago Row retreat, where he might examine his prize at leisure, embowered amid trucks and barrows. Thither he pushed his way, and soon, in the shade of the upturned barrow, he brought out the music-box. Bright and shiny, it had taken no damage in the flight, though on his hands he found scratches and on his shins bruises. Got, he knew not how. On the top of the box was a picture of a rosy little boy in crimson, presenting a scarlet nosegay to a rosy little girl in pink, while a red-brick mansion filled the distance and solidified the composition the brilliant hoop that made the sides, silver, Dicky was convinced, was stamped in patterns, and the little brass handle was an irresistible temptation. Dicky climbed a truck and looked about him, peeping from beside the loose fence plank. Then, seeing nobody very near, he muffled the box as well as he could in his jacket and turned the handle. This was indeed worth all the trouble. Gently does the trick was the tune— and Dicky, with his head aside and his ear on the bunch of jacket that covered the box, listened. His lips parted, his eyes seeking illimitable space. He played the tune through, and played it again, and then growing reckless, played it with the box unmuffled, till he was startled by a bang on the fence from without. It was but a passing boy with a stick, but Dicky was sufficiently disturbed to abandon his quarters and take his music elsewhere. What he longed to do was to take it home and play it to Louie, but that was out of the question. He remembered the watch. But there was Jerry Gullen's canary, and him Dickie sought and found. Canary blinked solemnly when the resplendent box was flashed in his eyes, and set his ears back and forward as, muffled again in Dickie's jacket, it tinkled out its tune. Tommy Rand should not see it, lest he prevail over its beneficent dedication to the ropers, Truly as it was, Dickie's resolution was hard to abide by. The thing acquired at such a cost of patience, address, hard flight and deadly fear was surely his by right, as surely quite as the clock had been, and such a thing he might never touch again. But he put by the temptation manfully and came out by Jerry Gullen's front door. He would look no more on the music box, beautiful as it was. He would convey it to the ropers before temptation came again. It was not easy to devise likely means. Their door was shut fast, of course. For a little while, he favoured the plan of setting the box against the threshold, knocking and running off. But an opportunity might arise of doing the thing in a way to give him some glimpse of the ropers' delight, an indulgence he felt entitled to. So he waited a little, listened a little, and at last came out into the street and loafed. It was near six o'clock, and a smell of bloater hung about Jerry Gullen's door and window. Under the raised sash, Jerry Gullen, close-cropped and foxy of face, smoked his pipe, sprawled his elbows, and contemplated the world. Dickie, with the music-box stowed out of sight, looked as blank of design and as destitute of possession as he could manage, for there were loafers near Mother Gaps, loafers at the Luck Row corner, at every corner and loafers by the posties, all laggard of limb and alert of eye. He had just seen a child, going with an empty beer-can, thrown down, robbed of his coppers and a poor old top, and kicked away in helpless tears. And the incident was commonplace enough, or many would have lacked pocket-money. Whosoever was too young, too old, or too weak to fight for it, must keep what he had well hidden in the jago. Down the street came Billy Leary. Big, flushed and limping, and hanging to a smaller man by a fistful of his coat on the shoulder. Dicky knew the small man for a good toy-getter, which means watch-stealer, and judged he had had a good click, the proceeds whereof Billy was battening upon in beer-shops, for Billy Leary rarely condescended to anything less honourable than bashing, and had not yet fallen so low as to go about stealing for himself. His missus brought many to the cosh. And his chief necessity, another drink, he merely demanded of the nearest person with the money to buy it, on pain of bashing, or he walked into the nearest public house, selected the fullest pot, and spat in it, a ceremony that deprived the purchaser of further interest in the beer, and left it at his own disposal. There were others, both Rand's and Leary's, who pursued a similar way of life, but Billy Leary was biggest among them, big men not being common in the Jago and rarely came to a difficulty. As, however, he did once come, having invaded the pot of a stranger who turned out to be a mile-end pugilist exploring Shoreditch. It was not well for any Jago had made a click to have Billy Leary know of it, for then the clicker was apt to be sought out, clung to, and sucked dry. Possibly bashed as well, when nothing more was left, if Billy Leary were still but sober enough for the work. Dicky gazed after the man with interest, it was he whom his father was to fight in a week or so, perhaps in a few days, on the first Sunday, indeed, that Leary should be deemed fit enough. How much of the limp was due to yesterday's disaster, and how much to today's beer, Dicky could not judge. But there seemed little reason to look for a long delay before the fight. As Dicky turned away, a man pushed a large truck round the corner from Edge Lane, and on the footpath beside it walked the parson calm as ever, with black clothes and a tall hat, whole and unsoiled. He had made himself known in the Jago in the course of that afternoon. He had traversed it from end to end, street by street and alley by alley. His self-possession, his readiness, his unbending firmness, abashed and perplexed the Jago's, and his appearance, just as the police had left, could but convince them that he must have some mysterious and potent connection with the force. He had attempted very little in the way of domiciliary visiting, being content for the time to see his parish, and speak a word here and there another with his parishioners. An encounter with Kiddo Cook did as much as anything towards securing him a proper deference. In his second walk through Old Jago Street, as he neared the feathers, he was aware of a bunch of grinning faces pressed against the bar window, and as he came abreast, forth-stepped Kiddo Cook from the door. Impudently affable, smirking and ducking with mock obsequiousness, and offering a quart pot. How'd you find yourself, sir? He asked with pantomime cordiality. Awfully shocking, these lower classes, ain't they? Er, uh, yes, disgusting, really. Really, er, uh, might I, er, uh, propose, er, uh, a little refreshment? Allow me. The parson, grimly impassive, heard him through, took the pot, and instantly jerking it upward, shot the beer, a single splash, into Kiddo's face. "'There are things I must teach you, I see, my man,' he said, without moving a muscle, except to return the pot. Kiddo Cook, coughing, drenched and confounded, took the pot instinctively and back to Mother Gap's door, while a bunch of faces at the bar window tossed and rolled in joyous ecstasy the ghost whereof presently struggled painfully among kiddo's own dripping features as he realised the completeness of his defeat and the expedience of a patient grin the parson went calmly on before this indeed when he had left the roper's room and just after dicky had started out he had looked in at the perrott's quarters to speak about the clock but plainly no clock was there and Mrs Perrott's flaccid indignation at the suggestion and her unmistakable ignorance of the affair decided him to carry the matter no further, at any rate for the present. Moreover, the little hunchback's tale was inconclusive. He had seen no clock in Dicky's possession, had but met him on the stairs with a bulging jacket. The thing might be suspicious, but the new parson knew better than to peril his influence by charging where he could not convict. So he duly commiserated Hannah Perrott's troubles, suggested that the baby seemed unwell and had better be taken to a doctor, and went his way about the Jago. Now he stopped the truck by Dickie's front door and mounted to the ropers' room, for he had seen that the Jago was no place for them now, and had himself found them a suitable room away by Dove Lane. And so, emboldened by his company, the ropers came forth, and with the help of the man who had brought the truck carried down the pieces of their bedstead, a bundle of bedding, the two chairs, the pink vases, and the strip of old carpet, and piled them on the truck with the few more things that were theirs. Dicky, with his hand on the music box in the lining of his jacket, sorted up by the tail of the truck, and waiting his chance, plunged his gift under the bundle of bedding and left it there. But the little hunchback's sharp eyes were jealously on him, and, look THERE! He squealed, He put his hand in the truck and took something. You lie, answered DICKY, indignant and hurt, but cautiously backing off. I ain't got nothing. He spread his hands and opened his jacket in proof. Think I got your bloomin' bedstep He had nothing, it was plain. In fact, at the tail of the truck there was nothing he would easily have moved at all, certainly nothing he could have concealed. So the rest of the little removal was hurried, for heads were now at windows, the loafers began to draw about the truck, and trouble might break out at any moment. Indeed, the ropers could never have ventured from their room but for the general uneasy awe of the parson, for nothing was so dangerous in the jago as to impugn its honesty. To rob another was reasonable and legitimate, and to avoid being robbed, as far as might be, was natural and proper. But to accuse anybody of a theft was unsportsmanlike. A foul outrage, a shameful abuse, a thing unpardonable. You might rob a man, bash a man, even kill a man. But to take away his character, even when he had none, was to draw down the execrations of the whole jago, while to assail the pure fame of the place, to give the street a bad name, this was to bring the jago howling and bashing about your ears the truck moved off at last, amid murmurings, mutterings, and grunts from the onlookers. The man of the truck pulled, roper shoved behind, and his wife, with her threadbare decency and her meagre bruised face, carried the baby, while a hunchbacked boy went by her side. All this under convoy of the Reverend Henry Sturt. A little distance gave more confidence to a few, and when the group had reached within a score of yards of edge lane, there came a hoot or two, a yeah. and other less spellable sounds, expressive of contempt and defiance. Roper glanced back nervously, but the rest held on their way regardless. Then came a brick bat, which missed the woman by very little, and struck the truck wheel. At this, the parson stopped and turned on his heel, and Coco Harnwell, the flinger, drove his hands into his breech pockets, and affected an interest in Mother Gap's window, till, perceiving the parson's eye directed sternly upon him, and the parson's stick rising to point at him, he ingloriously turned tail and scuttled into Jago Court. And so the ropers left the Jago. Dove Lane was but a stone's throw ahead when some of the load shifted, and the truck was stopped to set the matter right. The chest was pushed back, and the bedding was lifted to put against it. And so the musical box came to light. Roper picked it up and held it before the vicar's eyes. "'Look at that, sir,' he said. "'You witness, I know nothing of it, won't you? "'It ain't mine, and I never saw it before. "'It been put into spite to put a theft on us. "'When they come for us, you'll bear me out, sir, won't you? "'That was that parrot boy as was put up to do that. "'I'll be bound. "'When he was behind the truck.' But nobody came for Dickie's gift, and in the Jago twilight, Dicky vainly struggled to whistle the half-remembered tune, and to persuade himself that he was not sorry that the box was gone. Section 11. Josh Perrott reached home late for tea, but in good humour. He had spent most of the day at the Bag of Nails, dancing attendance on the high mobsmen those of the high mob were the flourishing practitioners in burglary the mag the mace and the broads with an outer fringe of such dippers such pickpockets as could dress well welshers and snidesmen these the grandees of rascality lived in places far from the jago and some drove in gigs and pony traps but they found the bag of nails a convenient and secluded exchange and house of call and there they met made appointments designed villainies, and tossed for sovereigns, deeply reverenced by the admiring jagos, among whom no ambition flourished but this, to become also of these resplendent ones. It was of these that old Beveridge had spoken one day to Dicky in language the child but half understood. The old man sat on a curb in view of the bag of nails, and smoked a blackened bit of clay pipe. He hauled Dicky to his side, and, pointing with his pipe, said see that man with the furrows what dicky replied meet him in the ice-cream coat smoking a cigar yes and the other in a brimmy hat hut and the red face and the umbrella yes what are they I mob ooks toffs right now dicky parrot you jigger whelp look at them look hard some day if you're clever cleverer than any one in the Jigo now, if you're only scoundrel enough and brazen enough and lucky enough, one of a thousand, maybe you'll be like them, bursting with high living, drunk when you like, red and pimply. There it is. That's your aim in life. There's your pattern. Learn to read and write. Learn all you can. Learn cunning. Spare nobody and stop at nothing. And perhaps. He waved his hand toward the bag of nails. "'It's the best the world has for you, for the jago's got you, and that's the only way out, except jail and the gallows. So do you devil most, or God help you, Dicky Parrot, though he won't, for the jago's got you.' Old Beveridge had eccentric talk and manners, and the jago regarded him as a trifle balmy, though anything but a fool, so that Dicky troubled little to sift the meaning of what he said. Josh Perrott's mission among the high mob had been to discover some mobsman who might be disposed to back him in the fight with Billy Leary. For though a private feud was the first cause of the turn-up, still business must never be neglected, and a feud, or anything else, that might produce money, must be made to produce it, and when a fight of exceptional merit is placed before spectators, it is but fair that they should pay for their diversion." But few high mobsmen were at the bag of nails that day, Sunday being the day of the chief gatherings of the high mob, Sunday, the market day, so to speak, of the Jago, when such rent as was due weekly was paid. Most of the Jago rents were paid daily and nightly, and other accounts were settled or fought out. Moreover, the high mob were perhaps a trifle shy of the Jago at the time of a faction fight, and one was but just over, and that cut short at a third of the usual span of days. So that Josh waited long and touted vainly, till a patron arrived who knew him of old, who had employed him, indeed, as minder, which means a protector or a bully, as you please to regard it, on a race-course adventure involving bodily risk. On this occasion, Josh had earned his wages with hard knocks given and taken, and his employer had conceived a high and thankful opinion of his capacity. Wherefore he listened now to the tale of the coming fight, and agreed to provide something in the way of stakes, and to put something on for Josh himself, looking for his own profit to the bets he might make at favourable odds with his friends. For Billy Leary was notorious as being near prime ruffian of the Jago, while Josh's reputation was neither so evil nor so wide. And so it was settled, and Josh came pleased to his tea for assuredly Billy Leary would have no difficulty in finding another notable of the high mob to cover the stakes. Dickie was at home, sitting by Louie on the bed, and when he called his father it seemed pretty plain to Josh that the baby was out of sorts. "'He rum about the eyes,' he said to his wife. me If she don't look as though she was going to squint!' Josh was never particularly solicitous as to the children, but he saw that they were fed and clothed, perhaps by mere force of the habit of his more reputable days of plastering. He had brought home tripe, rolled in paper, and stuffed into his coat pocket, to make a supper on the strength of the day's stroke of business. When this tripe was boiled, he and Dickie essayed to drive morsels into Louis's mouth, and to wash them down with beer, but to no end but choking rejection. Whereat, Josh decided that she must go to the dispensary in the morning, and in the morning he took her, with Dickie at his heels, for not only did his wife still nurse her neck, but in truth she feared to venture abroad. The dispensary was no charitable institution, but a shop so labelled in Meakin Street, one of half a dozen such kept by a medical man who lived away from them, and bothered himself as little about them as was consistent with banking the takings and signing the death certificates. A needy young student, whose sole qualification was cheapness, were set to do the business of each place, and the uniform price for advice and medicine was sixpence. But there was a deal of professional character in the blackened and gilt-lettered front windows, and the sixpences came by hundreds. For hospital letters, but rarely came Meakin Street way. Such as did were mostly in the hands of tradesmen, who subscribed for the purpose of getting them and gave them to their best customers, as was proper and businesslike. And so the dispensary flourished, and the needy young student grew shifty and callous, and no doubt there were occasional faith cures. Indeed, cures of simple science were not at all impossible, for there was always a good supply of two drugs in the place, turkey rhubarb and sulphuric acid, both very useful, both very cheap, and both going very far in varied preparation properly handled. An ounce or two of sulphuric acid, for instance, costing something fractional, dilutes with water into many gallons of physic. Excellent medicines they made too, and balanced each other very well by reason of their opposite effects. But indeed, they were not all, for sometimes there were two or three other drugs in hand, interfering, perhaps troublesomely, with the simple division of therapeutics into the two provinces of rhubarb and sulphuric acid. Business was brisk at the dispensary. Several were waiting and medicine and advice were going at the rate of two minutes for sixpence. Louis's case was not so clear as most of the others. She could not describe its symptoms succinctly, as a pain here, or a tight feeling there. She did but lie heavily, staring blankly upward. She did not mind the light now, with a little cast in her eye, and repeat her odd little wail, and Dickie and her father could tell very little. The young student had a passing thought. That he might have known a trifle more of the matter if he had had time to turn up ross on nerve and brain troubles were such a proceeding consistent with the dignity of the dispensary but straightway assigning the case to the rhubarb province made up a powder ordered josh to keep the baby quiet and pitched his sixpence among the others well within the two minutes and faith in the dispensary was strengthened for indeed louis seemed a little better after the powder AND SHE WAS FED WITH SPOONFULS OF A FLUID BOUGHT AT A CHANDLER'S SHOP, AND CALLED MILK. SECTION 12 Dicky Parrot, come here,' said Mr. Aaron Weech, in a voice of sad rebuke, a few days later. "'Come here, Dicky Parrot,' he shook his head solemnly as he stooped. Dicky slouched up. "'What was that you found the other day and didn't bring to me?' "'Nothing.' dicky withdrew a step it's no good you telling me that dicky parrot when i know better you know very well you can't pervert me knowin his little eyes searched dicky's face and dicky sulkily shifted his own gaze you're a wicked ungrateful young hound, and i've a good mind to tell a policeman to find out where you got that clock come in now don't you try running away what? after me a taken you in when you was hungry and givin' you coffee and cake and good advice like a father and a bloke and all and you owing me frippin's openly besides and then you goes in and takes your findin somewhere else i never protested dicky stoutly but mr Weech's cunning equal to a shrewd guess that since his last visit dicky had probably had another find and, quick to detect a lie, was slack to perceive a truth. "'Now, don't you go and add on a wicked lie to your sinful ungratefulness, whatever you do,' he said severely. "'That's wuss, and I allus know. Don't you know the little im as im as does one fault at fust, and lies to hide it makes it too?' It's bad enough to be ungrateful to me as he's been so kind to you, and it was to break the first commandment. If the bloater don't influence you, the only him ought. How would you like me to go and ask your father for that threepence apeny you owe me? That's what I'll have to do, if you don't mind. Dickie would not have liked it at all, as his frightened face testified. Then will find some ick and pay it at once, and then I won't. I won't be ard on you if you will be a good boy, but don't git playin no more tricks cause I know all about em now. Go and find something quick, and Dicky went End of part two.